Chapter 11 of the Social History of Smoking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Social History of Smoking by G. L. Apperson. Chapter 11 Later Victorian Days. When life was all a summer day, and I was under twenty, three loves were scattered in my way, and three at once are plenty. Three hearts, if offered with a grace, one thinks not of refusing. The task in this especial case was only that of choosing. I know not which to make my pet, my pipe, cigar, or cigarette. Henry S. Lee The social history of smoking in later Victorian days is marked by the triumph of the cigarette. The introduction of the cigar, as we have seen, brought about the revival of smoking, from the point of view of fashion, in the early decades of the nineteenth century, and the coming of the cigarette completed what the cigar had begun. The earliest references to the word cigarette in the Oxford Dictionary are dated 1842 and 1843, but both refer to the smoking of cigarettes abroad, in France and Italy. The 1843 quotation is from a book by Mrs. Romer, in which she says, The beggars in the streets have paper cigars, called cigarettes, in their mouths. The wording here would seem to show that cigarettes were not then familiar to English people. Lawrence Oliphant, who was both a man of letters and a man of fashion, is generally credited with the introduction into English society of the cigarette, but it is difficult to suggest even an approximate date. Writing from Boulogne to W. H. Wills in September 1854, Dickens says, I have nearly exhausted the cigarettes I brought here and proceeds to give directions for some to be sent to him from London. This is the earliest reference I have found to cigarette smoking in England, but it is possible that by cigarettes Dickens meant not what we now know as such, but simply small cigars. Mr. H. M. Hindman, in his Record of an Adventurous Life, says that when he was living as a pupil about the year 1860, with the rector of Oxburgh, his fellow pupils included Edward Abbott of Salonica, who, poor fellow, was battered to pieces by the Turks with iron staves torn from palings at the beginning of the Turco-Servian War. Cigarette smoking, now so popular, was then almost unknown, and Abbott, who always smoked the finest Turkish tobacco which he rolled up into cigarettes for himself, was the first devotee of this habit I encountered. Fairholt, in his book on tobacco, which was published in 1859, mentions cigarettes as being smoked in Spain and South and Central America, but makes no reference to their use in this country. The late Lady Dorothy Neville said that although cigarettes are a modern invention, she believed that they already existed in a slightly different form at the beginning of the nineteenth century, when old peninsular officers used to smoke tobacco rolled up tight in a piece of paper. They called this a papelito, and I fancy it was much the same thing as a cigarette. But if this were so, the habit must have died out long before the cigarette, as we know it, came into vogue. It may fairly be concluded, I think, that although about 1860 there may have been an occasional cigarette smoker in England, like the Edward Abbott of Mr. Hindman's reminiscences, yet it was not until a little later date that the small paper-enclosed rolls of tobacco became at all common among Englishmen, and it is quite likely that the credit, or discredit as the reader pleases, of bringing them into general and especially into fashionable use has been rightly given to lawrence oliphant 
Cigarettes were perhaps in fashion in 1870. In Puck, which was published in that year, Ouida, who is hardly an unimpeachable authority on the ways and customs of fashionable folk, though she loved to paint fancy pictures of their sayings and doings, pictures the row. The most fashionable lounge you have, but it is a republic for all that. There, she says, could Bill Jacobs lean against a rail with a clay pipe in his mouth and a terrier under his arm, close beside the Earl of Gileadine, with his cigarette and his eyeglass, and his pool-cut habiliments. Thirty years or more ago the late Andrew Lang wrote an article entitled Enchanted Cigarettes, which began, To dream our literary projects, Balzac says, is like smoking enchanted cigarettes, but when we try to tackle our projects, to make them real, the enchantment disappears. We have to till the soil, to sow the weed, to gather the leaves, and then the cigarettes must be manufactured, while there may be no market for them after all. Probably most people have enjoyed the fragrance of these cigarettes, and have brooded over much which they will never put on paper. Here are some of the ashes of the weeds of my delight, memories of romances whereof no single line is written, or is likely to be written. What Balzac said in his La Cousin Bette was, Pensez, rêver, concevoir de belles œuvres, est une occupation délicieuse. C'est fumer des cigares enchantés. C'est mener la vie de la courtisane, occupée à sa fantaisie. Balzac's cigars became cigarettes in Lang's fantasy. The French novelist seems to have been one of those who praised tobacco without using it much himself. In his Illusions Perdues, Carlos Herrera, who was Vatrine, says to Lucien, whom he meets on the point of suicide, « Dieu nous a donné le tabac pour endormir nos passions et nos douleurs. » M. A. Le Breton, however, in the book on Balzac, « L'homme et l'ovaire », says il ne se soutient qu'à force de café although he would sit working at his desk for twenty-five hours running about the time that lang's article was written sir f c bernand's burlesque bluebeard was produced at the gaiety theatre in those days a certain type of young man since known by many names including the present-day nut was called a masher and bernand's burlesque included a duet with the refrain we are mashers, we are, as we smoke our cigar, and crawl along never too quick. We are mashers, you bet, with the light cigarette, and the quite irreproachable stick. Nowadays the cigarette is in such universal use that it would be impossible thus to associate it with any particular type of man, sane or inane. The late Bishop Mandel Creighton of London was an incessant smoker of cigarettes. Mr. Herbert Paul, in his paper on the bishop, says that those who went to see him at Fulham on a Sunday afternoon always found him, if they found him at all, leisurely, chatty, hospitable, and apparently without a care in the world. There was the family tea-table, and there were the eternal cigarettes. The bishop must have paid a fortune in tobacco duty. There is a side view of another tobacco lover in the notebooks of Samuel Butler, the author of Erewhon. Creighton, after reading Butler's Alps and Sanctuaries, had asked the author to come and see him. Butler was in doubt whether or not to go, and consulted his clerk, Alfred, on the matter. That wise counsellor asked to look at the bishop's letter, and then said, I see, sir, there is a crumb of tobacco in it. I think you can go. Apart from cigarette smoking, however, the use of tobacco grew steadily during the later Victorian period. 
In Mr. Punch's pocket-book for 1878 there was a burlesque dialogue between uncle and nephew titled Cupid and Backy. The uncle thinks the younger men smoke too much, and declares that tobacco has destroyed the susceptibility which in my time made youngsters fall in love, as they often did, with a girl without a penny. No fellow can fall in love when he has continually a pipe in his mouth, and if he ever feels inclined to when it would be imprudent, why, he lights his pipe, and very soon smokes the idea of such folly out of his head. Not so when I was your age. Besides a few old farmers, churchwardens, and overseers, and such, nobody then ever smoked but laborers and the lower orders, cads, as you now say. Smoking was thought vulgar. Young men never smoked at all. To smoke in the presence of a lady was an inconceivable outrage. Yet now I see you and your friends walking alongside of one another's sisters, smoking a short pipe down the street. The girls like it, says Nepos. In my time, replies Avunculus, young ladies would have fainted at the bare suggestion of such an enormity. The dialogue ends as follows. Nepos, producing short clay. See here, uncle, this pipe is almost colored. How long do you think I have had it? Avunculus. Can't imagine. Nepos. Only three weeks. Avunculus. Good boy. In the same pocket-book, one of the ideals of a wife by a bachelor is to approve of smoking all over the house, while one of these ideals of a husband by a spinster is not to smoke or use a latch-key. Mr. Punchin's prelections, of course, are not to be taken too seriously. They all necessarily have the exaggeration of caricature, but at the same time they are all significant, and for the social historian are invaluable. Tobacco smoking was advancing victoriously all along the line. Absurd old conventions and ridiculous restrictions had to give way or were broken through in every direction. The compartments for smokers on railway trains, at first provided sparsely and grudgingly, became more and more numerous. The practice of smoking out of doors, which the early Victorians held in particular abhorrence, became common, or at least so far as cigars and cigarettes were concerned. Lady Dorothy Neville, whose memory covered so large a part of the nineteenth century, said, in the leaves from her notebook, which was published in 1907, that to smoke in Hyde Park, even up to comparatively recent years, was looked upon as absolutely unpardonable while smoking anywhere with a lady would, in the earlier days, have been classed as an almost disgraceful social crime. The first gentleman of whom Lady Dorothy heard as having been smoking a cigar in the park was the Duke of Sutherland, and the lady who told her spoke of it as if she had been present at an earthquake. Pipes were, and are, still looked at askance in many places where the smoking of cigars and cigarettes is freely allowed, and fashion frowned on the pipe in street or park. Of course, what one might do in the country and what one might do in town are two quite different things. The following story was told nearly twenty years ago of the late Duke of Devonshire. An American tourist began talking one day to a quiet-looking man who was smoking outside an inn on the Chatsworth estate, and, taking the man for the innkeeper, expressed his admiration of the Duke of Devonshire's domain. "'Quite a place, isn't it?' said the American. "'Yes, a pleasant place enough,' returned the Englishman. The fellow who owns it must be worth a mint of money, said the American through his cigar smoke. Yes, he's comfortably off, agreed the other. I wonder if I could get a look at the old chap, said the stranger, after a short silence. I should like to see what sort of a bird he is. Puff, puff, went the English cigar, 
and then said the English voice, trying hard to control itself, If you, puff, look hard, puff, puff, in this direction, you, puff, puff, can tell in a minute. You, you, faltered the American, getting up. Why, I thought you were the landlord. Well, so I am, said the Duke, though I don't perform the duties. I stay here, he added, with a twinkle in his eye, to be looked at. Among the chief strongholds of the old ideas and prejudices were some of the clubs. At the Athenaeum, the only smoking-room used to be a combined billiard and smoking-room in the basement. It was but a few years ago that an attic story was added to the building, and smokers can now reach more comfortable quarters by means of a lift put in when the alterations were made in 1900. This new smoking-room is a very handsome, largely booked-lined apartment. At the end of the room is a beautiful marble mantelpiece of late 18th-century Italian work. At White's, even cigars had not been allowed at all until 1845, and when, in 1866, some of the younger members wished to be allowed to smoke in the drawing-room, there was much perturbation, the older men's bitterly opposing the proposal. A general meeting was held to decide the question, says Mr. Ralph Neville, in his London Clubs, when a number of old gentlemen who had not been seen at the club for years made their appearance, stoutly determined to resist the proposed desecration. Where do all these old fossils come from? inquired a member. From Kensal Green, was Mr. Alfred Montgomery's reply. Their hearses, I understand, are waiting to take them back there. The motion for the extension of the facilities for smoking was defeated by a majority of twenty-three votes, and as an indirect result the Marlborough Club was founded. The late King Edward, at the time the Prince of Wales, is said to have sympathized strongly with the defeated minority at White's, and to have interested himself in the foundation of the Marlborough, where, for the first time in the history of West End clubland, smoking, except in the dining-room, was everywhere allowed. By smoking is no doubt here meant everything but pipes, which were not considered gentlemanly, even at the Garrick Club at the beginning of the present century. The late Duc de Moile was a social pioneer in pipe-smoking. His caricature in Vanity Fair represents him with a pipe in his mouth, although he is wearing an opera hat, black frock coat buttoned up, and a cloak. By the end of the nineteenth century, the snuff-box, which once upon a time stood upon the mantelpiece of every club, had disappeared. The habit of snuffing had long been falling into desuetude. The cigar dealt the snuff-box its death-blow, and the cigarette was chief mourner at its funeral. As in other periods, men of letters and artists ignored the social prejudices and conventions about tobacco, and laughed at the artificial distinctions drawn between cigars and pipes. It is said that the late Sir John Millay smoked a clay pipe in his carriage when he was part of the first jubilee procession of Queen Victoria, a performance, if it took place, which would certainly have horrified her tobacco-hating majesty. Tennyson and his friends smoked their pipes as they had always done, and old-fashioned clay pipes too. Sir Norman Lockyer, referring to a period about 1867, mentions Monday evenings in his house which were given up to friends who came in, sans ceremonie, to talk and smoke. Clays from Brosley, including church wardens, and some of larger size, Frank Buckland's held an ounce of tobacco, were provided, and the confirmed smokers, Tennyson, an occasional visitor, being one of them, kept their pipes on which the name was written, in a rack for future symposia. Of the other great Victorian poets, Morris was a pipe-smoker, and so was Rossetti. 
Browning also smoked, but not, I think, a pipe. Swinburne, on the other hand, detested tobacco, and expressed himself on the subject with characteristic extravagance and vehemence. James I was a knave, a tyrant, a fool, a liar, a coward. But I love him, I worship him, because he slit the throat of that blackguard Raleigh who invented this filthy smoking. Professor Blackie, in a letter to his wife, remarked, The first thing I said on entering the public room was, What a delightful thing the smell of tobacco is in a warm room on a wet night. I gave my opinion with great decision that tobacco, whiskey, and all such stimulants or sedatives had their foundation in nature, could not be abolished, or rather should not, and must be content with the check of a wise regulation. Even pious ladies were fond of tea, which, taken in excess, was worse for the nerves than a glass of sherry. One of the most distinguished of Victorian men of letters, John Ruskin, was a great hater of tobacco. Notwithstanding this, he sent Carlyle, an inveterate smoker, a box of cigars in February 1865. In his letter of acknowledgment, Carlyle wrote, Dear Ruskin, you have sent me a magnificent box of cigars. For which can I say an answer? It makes me both sad and glad. I de me, we are such stuff, gone with a puff, then think and smoke tobacco. In the later years of his life, spent at Brantwood, Ruskin's guests found that smoking was not allowed even after dinner. Another and greater Victorian, Gladstone, was also a non-smoker. He is said, however, on one occasion, when King Edward, as Prince of Wales, dined with him in Downing Street, to have toyed with a cigarette out of courtesy to his illustrious guest. It was in the latter years of his life that Tennyson told Sir William Harcourt one day that his morning pipe after breakfast was the best in the day, an opinion, by the way, to which many less distinguished smokers would subscribe, when Sir William laughingly replied, The earliest pipe of half-awakened bards. The companion burlesque line, The earliest pipe of half-awakened bird's eye, appears, with one from Homer and one from Virgil, at the head of Arthur Sedgwick's poem in Greek iambics, Tobacco, in Echoes from the Oxford Magazine, 1890. Sedgwick's praise of tobacco, classically draped in Greek verse, occasionally of the macaronic order, is delightful. He hails the pipe as a work of pan, and the divine smoke as the best and most fragrant of gifts, healer of sorrow, companion in joy, rest for the toilers, drink for the thirsty, warmth for the cold, coolness in the heat, and a cheap feast for those who waste away through hunger. How is it, he says, that through so many ages men, who have need of thee, have not seen thy nature? Often, he continues, the verses may be roughly translated, Often, when I am in alpine solitudes, tied to a chain to a few companions, clinging to the rope, while barbarians lead the way, carrying in my hands an ice axe, and breathless crawling up the snow-covered plain, then, when groaning I reach the summit, either pulled up or on foot, how have I rested, on my back in the rocks, charming my soul with thy divine clouds? He goes on, in burlesque strain, to speak of the joys of tobacco when he lies in idleness by the streams in breathless summer, comforted by a bath just taken, or when in the middle of the night he is worn out by revising endless exercises, underlining the mistakes in red and allotting marks, or weighed down by the wise men of old, Thucydides, Sophocles, Euripides, the ideas of Plato, wiles of Pindar, fearfully corrupt strophe of Chorus, 
wondrous guesses of Teutons and fancies of philologists, when men swoon in the inexplicable wanderings of the endless examination of Homer, when the brain reels among much toil, then he hails the pipe, help of mortals, and hastens to kindle sacrifices at its altars, and rejoices as he tastes its smoke. Let someone, he exclaims, bring Bryant and May's fire, which strikes a light only if rubbed on the box. En encartotis pur brantomeicon, causae dadunaton me uci proskiste tribain. And taking the best and blackest bowl, and putting on Persian slippers, sitting on the softest couch, I will light my pipe with my feet in the hearth, and I will cast aside all mortal care. Nor must the delightful verses by J. K. S. be forgotten, in which the author of Lapsus Calami sings of the grand old pipe. And I'm smoking a pipe which is fashioned like the face of the grand old man. And the quaint similarity or comparison between the pipe and Gladstone, the grand old man, when Lapsus Calami appeared in 1888, is maintained throughout. Grows he black in his face with his labors? Well, so does my grand old pipe. For the sake of its excellent savor, for the many sweet smokes of the past, my pipe keeps its hold on my favor, though now it is blackening fast. But although many pipes were smoked at the universities, there were occasionally to be found odd survivals of old prejudices. Dr. Shipley, in his recent memoir on John Willis Clark, the Cambridge Registrary, says that even in the seventies of the last century there was an elderly don at Cambridge who once rebuked a junior fellow who was smoking a pipe in the wilderness with the remark, No Christian gentleman smokes a pipe, or if he does he smokes a cigar. The perpetrator of this bull was the same parson who married late in life, and returning to his church after a honeymoon of six weeks, publicly thanked God for three weeks of unalloyed connubial bliss. End of chapter 11